Within this context, Chile achieved a lot of free trade commerce. 70% of our whole export goes to APEC countries. So without Chile being part of APEC, it would have never been able to achieve all these things. In the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, my country, the United States, was very much the champion of liberal trade. At some point after the turn of the millennium, the United States is increasingly drawing within itself, cutting off a lot of liberal trade. I think that the United States needs to return to the place that it was in terms of foreign policy on trade 20 years ago. I want this summit to be like uh, the first start for at least the fair competition for all the countries in the world. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Media Chats, the special edition of Chat Lounge. I'm Yawen. Today, we'll be discussing this very important meeting that has captured the world's attention, the APEC Summit. Let's firstly welcome our three special guests. We have Jason Smith. Jason is the host of the Bridge podcast from the United States. And also, we have Maria Sanveza. Maria is a journalist from Chile, and also she's a commentator. Um, we also have Bo Sawatra. Sawatra is a journalist from Thailand. The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meetings, or APAC, took place in San Francisco this week. Leaders from the 21 member economies, including major players such as China, the United States, Japan, Australia, and Canada, gathered to discuss ways to enhance trade and economic growth across the Pacific region. APAC was established in 1989. Initially, it focused on trade and the economy, over time, its scope has expanded to include a broader range of topics. So in this episode, we will explore sectors where APEC member economies share common interests and the challenges they encounter, while also provide some insights into its cooperative outlook. So first of all, Jason, could you share with us some background on APEC? I know it's very important for our audience to know the background before we delve into a more in-depth discussion. Well, Economics is complicated, and changing the economics of one country is extremely complicated. So if we're going to enter into new trade arrangements, which facilitate trade between nations, which is Economics 101, going to improve uh, the economic standing of all countries, especially developed countries when they enter into trade blocks, if there is a lowering of tariffs and an increase in trade, that increases the wealth of all recipient countries. In less developed countries, this tends to be less true. And so let's just look at the United States, for example, my own country. I'm familiar with the internal politics. If we want to change a single policy in terms of the United States international trade, that requires at least two parts of government to agree on that. So the House and the President, for example, need to pass a law to change that. So obviously, they're not going to just do this unilaterally. So what needs to happen first is dialogue and discourse. And APEC is essentially a discourse forum, a forum for discussing economic possibilities. So when these nations get together, they're essentially looking at how can we make it possible for increased trade, for in increased uh, logistics, for your nation and my nation to both get what we want and to benefit for bo both of our people. Because we're not talking about two nations entering into trade. We're talking about 21 considering adopting policies which will affect all of them. And once they agree, each of them needs to bring those policies back to their individual governments and go through the necessary steps to make that amenable and acceptable to the people in their nation. So if this is going to move forward and become a kind of trade block someday or facilitate mechanisms for trade in other trade blocks, you need a lot of agreement. And in order to get a lot of agreement, you need a lot of discussion. So meeting regularly and having these kinds of exchanges is going to facilitate future trade opportunities, which will increase the wealth of all of the members of APEC or other related institutions like the RCEP. Uh, Maria, this is actually a question for you. Jason, just briefly touch upon the background on APEC. We know today APEC has 21 uh, member economies and accounting for nearly 40% of the world's population 
and half of the world's trade and over 60% of the global GDP. So by looking at these figures, how has APEC achieved this remarkable results based on your observation? So it's not just about the summit itself. It's about the tendencies after the, the fall down of the Soviet Union, because the whole... Uh, how to say, the epicenter of the economy shifted towards the Pacific. So APEC, it's not that um, has achieved herself this goal, but it has to do with the worldwide tendency. And this tendency has been a bit disrupted by the major political clashes in the last years. And this is a very important reason why this summit specifically, it's so important and there is so much attention around this meeting. Actually, most of the attention goes to the bilateral meeting between President Biden and President Xi because we know that these are the two major economies that support the ground for APEC to still promote free trade and the goals that globalization have, which were the context for APEC to achieve all these uh, free trade uh, agreements and this non-binding, but still enforced in its country agreement. So uh, we are in a very interesting moment because this situation, this economical situation hasn't changed, but we have lost a lot of the political ground that was supporting this specific economic infrastructure for the world. Thailand maybe is not a major player for the APEC, right? But I want to bring all of you back to like in 1992, before the first summit. This is uh, the like uh, they held the APEC minister fourth ministerial meeting. It's uh, before the summit in Bangkok. And we also the host for two times already. And last year, we also the host for the APEC meeting as well. When we're looking at this rapid economic growth in the Asia Pacific region, this APEC institution it operates on consensus and non binding initiatives in order to promote uh, regional growth and economic development. So how unique is that compared to other, I'll say, existing institutions or trade platforms? You know, that's difficult to answer because even if you look at some of the most important global liberalization institutions or tools like the WTO, there's conflict all of the time. So what is binding? What is non-binding? And in terms of what we're able to accomplish at APEC, if you can bring people together. They're going to be able to create more wealth. We, a lot of us here, actually, we're just at China International Import Expo, the CIIE in Shanghai. And one of the things that I noticed that I, you know, I've thought about before, but I really got firsthand experience there was a lot of people from diff- disparate parts of business were able to come together quickly. It wasn't just about China and what it's going to import from nations and businesses around the world. But these 100 different countries that were represented in different ways that were there, that were present, were talking to each other. And so maybe someone owns a logistics company. If you don't have anything to move around, your company is meaningless. And if another institution is agricultural and produces enormous amount of sorghum, if they don't have a way to move that around or the right customers, they're not going to be able to get their product to market either. It's only by these different pieces coming together that everyone is able to benefit. So even though there are not, it's non-binding in APEC, there's a lot of discussions that go on that facilitate trade, which is beneficial to all 21 members. Even nations that are not members of APEC indirectly benefit from the economic growth that comes out of those kinds of discussions and forums. We also know this year marks the 30th anniversary of the first APEC leaders meeting. And over the past three decades, Residents across the region have seen their per capita income rise nearly fourfold and lifting millions of people out of poverty and creating a growing middle class in the Asia-Pacific region. I know it sounds like a very big picture, so this is a question for you all. Could you share some specific examples or something that impressed you the most of how your country has benefited from participating this institution? Yeah, so uh, the things that APEC is also, it represents a tendency. In the case of Chile, which is part of APEC, it's a quite of extraordinary case because most of Latin American countries are not part of the institutions. Within this context, Chile achieved a lot of free trade commerce, including China, uh, as an example. And 70% of our whole export goes to APEC countries. 
So this forum also, as Jason said, allows these countries to be constantly in these debates, in these multilateral meetings, which are about promoting trade. So without Chile being part of APEC, it would have never been uh, able to achieve all these things. So it's not just about the achievements of APEC as a forum itself, but all what happened in between, because it goes at very different dimensions. And you have people from the bureaucracy sector, from the financial sector, which are constantly meeting, and also countries from within APEC having constant bilateral meetings. And in the case of Chile, it has given us a major platform for our companies, for our products. And as I said, now it's about 70% of our whole export within the APEX forum context. This is very clearly, we have never had these opportunities, but it also goes in different directions. So being part of APEC also implies to be part of other different instances, because uh, we are in um, good trade relationships with APEC countries as well. Because of participating in the forum, exactly, with China, with Japan, also with some uh, other Pacific located countries, obviously, Mm -hmm. but mostly with economies that can also take in our products. So it was very um, beneficial until the pandemic and this new Cold War started to, as I say, take out the ground for these bilateral meetings to be very prosperous. So we are a bit in a different situation now. And I think that that's why this forum is so important. And there are so many expectations because we have seen the economy to stagnate because of a shifted of the understanding of how globalization should work. We are in a, in the so-called decoupling and nuclear war with countries, especially the U.S., who were the biggest promoters of this initiative, questioning the common understanding of how economy should work worldwide. And this is especially damaging for smaller countries like Chile, because we don't have much of a say in the geopolitical context. So for us, the first years of APEC, the first two decades were very beneficial. But now with this economic exaggeration, as we are exporting countries, we suffer more than larger economies. I completely agree with everything that was just said, because in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s, my country, the United States, was very much the champion of liberal trade, very much trying to stand out as a beacon of international trade. And a lot of that was not necessarily always to the benefit of other partners around the world. However, at some point after the turn of the millennium, the United States is increasingly drawing within itself and cutting off a lot of liberal trade, the sanctioning more countries than ever before, tariffs on more countries than ever before. As an American, I don't think that is in our best interest. For example, just agriculture alone, just to China, the United States sold $37 billion in agricultural goods in 2022. $37 billion for U.S. farmers. Americans care about U.S. farmers. But politicians are so short-sighted in terms of election cycles that they're starting to dismiss uh, international trade, liberalization of trade, when it is clearly benefiting Americans, American companies, American manufacturers, and American farmers. So the way that the United States is kind of turning inward is not just uh, having negative impacts on other countries, but it's having negative impacts on Americans themselves. So I think that the United States needs to return to the place that it was in terms of foreign uh, policy on trade 20 years ago, because it was in a lot healthier place that it was developing better for countries around the world, but also for the United States of America as well. Hmm. We actually will delve into more about the U.S. role and its implication uh, in terms of economic participation in the Asia-Pacific region later on, but uh, let's hold on that thought here. I want to come to you, Bo, as a reporter from Thailand. Uh, Thailand has been actively participating in APAC as well. Right. So how do you view some concrete benefits that after Thailand participating in APAC? I can give you like a different angle from both of them. Just like a, as you mentioned, the last year Thailand was a host. And apart from the beneficial in the long run of the building economic cooperation in the like a largest framework in the world, uh, out of the last year, we got like a many people from the group of 20 
members from the APEC uh, economic zone that come to Thailand, and that's all level from like a uh, official up to minister, and they all like uh, come and spend the money, use the service, and try to help my country to promoting the tourism, buy the souvenir, anything. That means like uh, last year, we all benefit for all of them that come to Thailand. Mm. And I think this year, my Thailand team put some project that we call like a land bridge project. It's like a catalyst of the economic growth in Thailand. That is also the same, the same project that when my prime minister was in Beijing and talked to uh, your presidency, mm. this is the all benefit that I saw it from being the good participator in, in the summit. Their observers noted that uh, over the past three decades, led by APAC, the Asia-Pacific region, has emerged as the vital hub for global economic growth. And this is uh, mainly attributed to the region's focus on economic development while avoiding distractions from other topics like regional conflicts in the Middle East, for example. So how has this focus on economic development contributed to the rapid economic growth in the region? Well, that's very complicated. Um, I think around the world, obviously, conflict is not in the majority of parties' interest. Uh, in fact, there I read some analysis recently that suggests that it's not in anyone's interest, which I'm, I'm glad that that is increasingly the consensus because it's devastating to economies. So in terms of how is the Pacific region uh, benefiting from general peace in the region? Absolutely. But I think that there are other factors like China's economic miracle. So we're talking about how did nations benefit? And you asked us specifically about our own country. Well, I'm here in China. And uh, during the time that I was in here, I got to be a live in China when absolute poverty was eliminated as something that China took upon itself for many decades. And in 2020, there were no people in China living below that marker. Uh, World Bank's standard oh. for extreme poverty. And so I think it's not just about not having conflict, but it's about addressing basic needs for people. Because if more nations around the world could take up that kind of gauntlet, then we could see increase, increases in economic activity. Because China wasn't just giving them handouts in, in, inside of itself. It was going to, into regions and incorporating them into the national economy and the international economy. So you grow a particular product. It was integrating that community, which was previously impoverished, into the national economy by by helping them find the best place for their products. If you look at APEC, right, that's essentially what we're doing, but we're doing it on an international scale. We're taking economies that are producing products that are desirable to other economies around the world and facilitating their export. Uh, so that is creating wealth in the same way that China was able to eliminate poverty within its own borders. So there is very little incentive for small countries or underdeveloping economies to take part on, how to say, war conflicts. And this has been the tendency since uh, 89. For instance, Chile has not taken part in a war since about 200 years. And this is reality of most countries. So I think that this APEC is taking place in a very special moment because as the world has become multipolar, which differs very much from the origin of this forum, there is more and more discontent about global conflict. And in global countries, we see global players involved because, as I said, for most underdeveloping economies, there is no incentive in taking part in these conflicts because it's very damaging for all the countries which depend of international markets to export their products, which is most of the countries on earth, especially in the Pacific region, there is no incentive whatsoever for a conflict to take place. And I think that this APEC is putting this on the table. Most of the world want peace for very pragmatic reasons. Also, let's put aside the more reasons of what we are seeing now in the situation in, mid in the Middle East, but for very pragmatic reasons, because our economy, economy suffered the most. And this conflict, it's not a small in the sense that it's in a region which is very important in terms of the energy resources, 
And we know that it's going to disrupt even more the markets because the energy crisis never ended, as well as economic crisis. So I'm, I'm very looking forward to see how most of the countries are pushing for solutions for this conflict. And I think that this is a major, major shift since the beginning of APEX, because now, as Jason said, we have China as a very important player. And not just China, Russia is also part of this forum. We have other economies we, which are pretty much for free trade and their economies depend of the change of supply. And there is no incentive for them to take part of this conflict. So the United States, it's getting a lot of pressure also for bringing a solution on the table. This puts more weight on the economy and makes more pressure to shift from political conflict. We know this year the U.S. proposed the three priorities at the APAC, interconnection, innovation and inclusion. In which sectors do you see further potential for cooperation among nations? Well, you know, one thing that I'm interested in is... Um renewable energy sources. And this is where China shines. So if we're talking about inclusion, the most affordable, highest quality solar panels and wind technology comes from China. So nothing would make me happier. And I think this is part of Gavin Newsom's visit to China also, who's actually the former mayor of San Francisco, where APEC is being held this year. Um, as the governor of California, he came over because he wanted to cooperate on energy. And China produces the most solar. It's 80% of all solar technology comes from China. Now, if we can get the United States and other nations on board with importing a lot more Chinese technology, we can protect the environment better together. This is not something any one nation can do. And China has rolled out more uh, renewable energy than any nation in the world. In fact, I think right now in both solar and in wind, actually, and also in hydropower, China has as much as the rest of the world combined, all three. And China has, you know, 20% of the world's population, so that makes sense. However, because China controls 80% of the market, it also makes sense for other nations, and that could be for APEC, but also nations beyond APEC, to import those technologies and roll them out as quickly as possible. The Wall Street Journal recently said that China created a glut of solar products for the market. But I think that is completely upside down. Rather, we should look at it as China has created the conditions to begin abandoning fossil fuel emitting technologies. So if we're talking about APEC, what can we cooperate on? We can look at how we can deploy these technologies now that they are affordable for especially developing nations. If the United States wants to protect its own market, that's the United States problem. I don't think Gavin Newsom does. I don't think California does. But for developing nations, I'm certain that they would rather skip over having to import coal and gas uh, from other countries and become energy independent. If they have solar, if they have wind, they don't need to import coal. They don't need to import gas. They can just continue to produce their own energy from nature. And I think that a lot of countries around the world are looking at skipping over the fossil fuel emitting part of industrializing and looking at a more environmental way of doing that. And cooperation is necessary in order to facilitate that. I agree with Jason that this is where the renewable transition, it's where cooperation is most needed. And actually cooperation is needed in all levels because none of the current crises can be solved on a national level. They are all worldwide crises. But where cooperation is more urgent is in the military sector. Because for all these things to work, we need a stable war. And now, uh, and without anybody's expectation, we have a second outbreak of a war in the Middle East with a great potential of escalation. And I think that the, these conversations, these agreements towards the use of artificial intelligence in the military sector and how to avoid casualties, especially in the Taiwan Strait, it's the ground for all the other corporations to happen. And I think that with all the pressure of most of countries in APEC towards the United States, it's most likely to happen because nobody wants this situation. It's very clear that there is a huge gap between what the NATO-oriented countries were trying to do towards their own population. There is a big sense of criticism within the United States about the support of the U.S. 
in this uh, or their participation in this war and the same happened in Europe that is a big big discontent there is a lot of pressure which is being exercised from the population towards the governments for stopping this war and this has also to do with the fact that people can feel how their lives are being impoverished by these two outbreaks and how the chains of supplies are having daily impacts on our life because uh, the prices of the energy resources are raising there are less jobs and so on. So I think that APEC could set up the ground for these conversations to happen and hopefully to have a more stable climate after these bilateral meetings between China and US. Because without this being achieved, there's little which can be achieved on the other dimensions. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome back. We've been discussing shared interests and opportunities among APEC member economies and continuing the program while delving into the common challenges facing the APEC region as well as its future outlook. Jason, there was a recent report released by APEC Regional Trends Analysis, and it says that economic growth in the APEC region is showing signs of improvement with expected growth of 3.3% this year compared to 2.6% last year. However, it also pointed out that the future trade in APAC is clouded by geoeconomic fragmentation and the accumulation of trade restrictive measures. So what are your guys' thoughts on the report's trade concerns? In my country's case in the United States, I think that is apt. It's, it's a perfect description of the direction that the United States has taken, again, with sanctions and with tariffs. And so I think the United States is also beginning to realize, especially the people, not necessarily some of the politicians, um, that this is not to the advantage of the United States. So for example, the United States sanctioned some technology companies in China to prevent them from innovating. Actually, it's ironic that they say innovation is one of the pillars that they want to discuss, because then China was able to out-innovate those sanctions, and now we have the new Huawei Mate 60 Pro phone, which I, I'm going to get, by the way. I haven't gotten one yet. My wife won't let me, but I'm, I'm getting one soon. Not just because it's a great phone, and it is, but because I think that this is going to be in a museum someday, is when people really began to realize that China is incredibly capable of innovating. China has more STEM majors than any other major nation. But in terms of the United States, a lot of its trade, I mean, it used to be until about a year ago that China was the United States' number one trading partner. That has shifted to Mexico. But what's really interesting about that is a lot of the goods that China was exporting to the United States are going as unfinished goods into Mexico, where they're becoming finished goods and going to the United States. So if we look at it that way, China is still infinitely important to the United States market. And if we're talking about reaching consumers, so the United States population is about 340 million people. But in terms of you know middle-class consumers who were able to just buy luxury goods, we're only talking about 200 million people. But in China, the middle class is actually about half a billion now. So the largest and most important consumer group in the world now is in China. Hmm. So I think all the APEC countries are looking at Chinese tourists. You know, it's not just U.S. tourists like it was in the 1980s or 90s. They're looking at China. I go to the grocery store now. And I always I brought my phone to take pictures. And I found about 50 items in Walmart by my house, which is a common grocery store here in China, that are from the United States and Europe. And I went back home and I actually checked where each one of these things is from, from, you know, Listerine to Lay's potato chips. And it's infinitely important for the United States to have excellent trade relations, not with China not just with China, but all of the rest of the world. It's good for Americans. So in terms of the world becoming fragmented, a lot of the fragmenters of the, of the e global economic order need to look at their own position and realize that this is not in their own best interest. This is exactly what I was saying. People are realizing that it's not in their interest. And there's this huge hub with the population's interest and what the governments are representing. And unfortunately, the U.S. is leading this tendency. Europe uh, has backed up what they were doing, but the criticism is just too strong. We are seeing a lot of instability, and this is all very damaging for the economy. And this is not just among the APEC countries, but we can see uh, the Middle East, for instance, where the United States lately had achieved to become um, 
how to say, the major voice, they don't have the power they had before in other wars that had a very similar dynamic to decide the fate of these countries. Mm. A lot of countries are trying to detach from their influence because they see it's damaging for their own economies. So even if they want to enforce this narrative, they don't have the same space they had in the past. Because Saudi Arabia now has become very critical, the, United, the Arab Emirates and, um, and so on and so forth. So there's a major criticism because of this um, fragmentation is disrupting the economy. And we have already seen a lot of consequence from, consequences from this. And if we don't make major shifts now, it's going to be deepened and deepened. And the world is just not prepared for this. We couldn't even discuss the benefits of a different type of economy. Unfortunately, most of the countries are export-oriented and they cannot shift their economies in three or four years. So this has meant a lot of poverty. Latin America, for instance, went back 30 years in poverty. So now we are at the level that we were 30 years ago, which is terrible because a lot of people, million um, of people have fall under the poverty line, which means they have nothing to eat. This is the kind of poverty that we are talking about. And Europe, incredibly enough, because it's also a very important economic zone, has a similar fate. A lot of people has already fall under the poverty line. They are food insecure and energy insecure. So there is a lot of pressure. And I think that this expectation towards the APEC meetings are fair. So what do you think steps might APEC member economies adopt to handle with this kind of situation? So APEC herself doesn't have the power to make agreements on that regard because we are talking about a political situation. I think that these conversations about the use of artificial intelligence and the military talks are reestablished. And this could mean um, a more safe situation in the Taiwan Strait. And I think that with that, we have a better ground to all the other economic agreements because we are talking about the epicenter of APEC. If there is no geopolitical security in the South Pacific, there is no point for APEC even to exist. So this is the most urgent thing. And most likely this is going to happen. And in that sense, I think that these expectations are fair. And all the other countries... As I said before, they are making pressure for this also to happen, because without this, there is no there is no ground for APEC to exist. All this trade goes within the Pacific, specifically within the South Pacific. This is the area where most of the population of APEC countries is. Most of the trading is happening, most of the world, and so on and so forth. So another focus of discussion between China and U.S. at this year's APEC is the regulation of potential risks posed by military use of AI. So how important is it for the world's first and second largest economies to establish guardrails for military AI and to limit the use of AI in um, autonomous weaponry? Well, this isn't really my field, but I do read on it some. And my concern is the same as most common people, that AI is an extremely unknown element. And the danger that it poses is greater than uh, most people realize. And it's not just because it might become self-aware. I think that's something people misunderstand. Humans using AI to accomplish unbelievable feats uh, is, can be very dangerous. Let's, I don't, I don't want to get too controversial here, but let's say most people who are capable of making certain kinds of devices uh, would not do so. But this make AI can potentially make it so that anyone can make a very complex uh, weapon. And that is extremely dangerous. And it's not just the military that needs we need to be concerned about. But AI in terms of the access by the general population can also be potentially extraordinarily dangerous for human civilization. The thing is that in this situation, we have already two conflicts with the potential of escalation. And we have the most important, which is in the Taiwan Strait. So it's not uh, the use of artificial intelligence. It's very important because it can provoke unforeseen situations. And this can end up in a confrontation. So this is why this talk is so important in order to avoid a third focus of conflict directly between the two major powers. So this is what about. It's not just about what the use of artificial intelligence can mean in terms of 
the possible risk and so on and so forth because it's not really test out. There is no regulation. There is no international law when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence in the military field. But it's more about avoiding a third focus of conflict in the time where the, this bilateral relationship at, at the lowest and the Taiwan Strait is highly militarized. We know within the APAC member economies, mm -hmm. there are big countries and smaller countries. And in terms of size and this economic body, obviously the economic disparities could be one of the challenges among APAC member economies. What joint efforts do you think have been pursued or should be in place within the APAC to address economic disparities and facilitate this inclusive growth? Well, I don't know if APEC is necessarily the exact right forum to discuss some of the tools that could be deployed, but I, I think it can be, so we can address it here. Um, favorable trade status with nations who have less developed economies can be uh, crucial. I mean, China enjoyed a great degree of favorable trade status with the WTO, arguably, that had a tremendous uh, effect and amplified China's ability to grow effectively for quite some time. So looking at the development of an economy and giving it special rights and privileges within a trade block or within the, the formulating of economic policies within this forum can potentially help alleviate some of the strain there. However, I think there are other forums like um, the Belt and Road Initiative that might be better at addressing some of these discrepancies right now. Yes, I think that Chile is a very good example of that because we were about to be the hosting country of uh, APEC in 2019, where a major uprising took place in the country because of the inequality. This was a major reason. Chile is a very unequal country, and every time an APEC summit was taking place, there are major demonstrations against APEC because people associate free trade with the inequality of the country, which is not one-to-one. -one. And most likely, it's not the forum who is going to solve this situation because this has to do with the structural problems in the country. And in that sense, I agree with Jason that other type of forums like One Bell One Road or the BRI initiative have a much greater potential because it's about investment in the country. It's not just about trading. It's also about many other dimensions of cooperations. But being part of APEC also gives smaller economics like Chile. We just have 70 million people in the country. It's a very small country in comparison with others to be on the table and still to enjoy a modest but consistent economic development. And without this capital, no other dimensions can be developed. No, it cannot be investment in infrastructure, in education, in digitalization. So unfortunately, there are not better alternatives at the moment. So China today, as the world's second largest economy, it has constantly played an active role within the APEC platform and also the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. So with APEC and also with the Belt and Road Initiative and other cooperative platforms, how do you view China's role and its efforts within APEC? I mean, I'm glad you broadened it out to not just within APEC, but all these other tools and instruments as well. Because I think right now, uh, after the Belt and Road Forum here in Beijing uh, about a month ago, I think everyone around the world is hopeful that not China, but the Belt and Road Initiative itself, which is comprised of all of its member nations, can create it has many, many different functions. It's an extremely complicated organization. It cannot be summed up easily. And I read multiple books about it, but logistics facilitating trade between nations physically, physical trade, but also cooperation to facilitate that trade because you need agreements in order for that trade to take place. And this is something that China has been leading on. Although the Belt and Road Initiative belongs to all of the members, China has been going around the world and offering very low interest loans, sometimes 0% interest, sometimes 2% interest to build ports, to build airports, to build rail, to outfit trains so that they can move across rail, which is not compatible. For example, if you're going to move from West China's Xinjiang into Kazakhstan, you're immediately going to find that the rail in Kazakhstan is not the same gauge 
as it is in China. So one of the things that China has done is it has pushed for the technological innovations necessary to make the cars themselves change and be able to manipulate their actual track so that when it it moves from one country to another, it can be more rapid and we can have goods moving faster and cheaper and more effectively. And by building ports around the world with what is known as the Maritime Silk Route and uh, the Overland Routes, we are increasing the amount of physical trade that can accompany the kinds of discourse that is taking place in forums like APEC. And the physical infrastructure is necessary to back up these kinds of agreements that we're coming to in forums like APEC that is in San Francisco. So Maria, we talk about China's role in the Asia-Pacific region, and U.S. is also a major player here in the Asia-Pacific. How do you evaluate the U.S. presence in the region, especially at APEC this year, the country is promoting its Indo-Pacific trade deal within the APAC. So what's driving the U.S. to do so? And what's its main purpose to do so? So there are several points um, here to mention. First of all, the Indo-Pacific strategy started already with Obama. It's just that the U.S. have not been able to achieve their shift towards the Pacific region because they are still engaged in the Middle East, uh, in the war in Ukraine and other um, military conflicts around the world. This is something that was unwanted by them because they already set up their geopolitical goals in the region. They foreseen that otherwise they would have not been able to catch up with the influence that China has accumulated towards this year. But most important to mention is their shift from an economic perspective to a military perspective. So the U.S. has made this shift leaving behind economic costs at a very high cost for the population. Unfortunately, most of European countries, because of the NATO alliance, are also following this lead at a great cost. Although Europe has backed up the U.S. in these shifts, the most uh, European countries have not able to really make things that improve the situation of the economic recessions because uh, there is a major shift towards uh, military decisions that are not in accordance with economic goals. But there are major, major regions that disagree with this strategy. As we mentioned and discussed before, Middle East, a lot of Pacific uh, countries. And in the middle of this is also India, which has a very complex relationship with the U.S. because they need India for re-establish their presence in the Indo-Pacific region. And this also come now with the expectations of NATO to expand in the region, which again means uh, that their presence in the regions is not seen in terms of economic trade, but they also see it very clearly and at its first place as a military presence that they want to reinforce as the situation is becoming more and more unstable in terms of their their uh, military power in the region. So the United States has decided that military goals are more important than the economy. Let's see what happened with the election next year, because although this is something that is shared by both countries, there are different approach when it comes to the economic goals. So it can be the case that if, let's say, someone like Trump wins, economy will take a more important or predominant role, but there is unfortunately a consensus that the region, the Indo-Pacific, should be a place where NATO should expand it. So it's not just something seen in terms of economic trade, but also a geopolitical point for them that they want to secure in military terms. And this is very dangerous because it puts all the countries also in this military race. So we have seen that it's not just India, but Australia, Japan, South Korea that are taking, being taken into account for, the, for this supposedly NATO expansion. And this means that all the other countries, again, need to put more uh, budget and need to take into account their military forces to contrarrest. So it set up a very bad dynamic that we have seen in other parts of the world and leaves behind all what these multilateral forums could achieve in terms of multi-economic agreements. Jason, how do you view the role that uh, the U.S. economic strategy in the Asia-Pacific region, do you think is playing a role that's 
promoting economic cooperation or economic competition. The United States likes to say lately that it is competition. However, I, and it's definitely not、uh, cooperation. Unfortunately, I know that's what、uh, we're all hoping for. That the Xi Biden meeting is going to mean that the United States is going to. Uh, be more amenable to cooperation with not just China but other nations in the Pacific. Unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of their actions are matching their words. So we have the Wangi visit to、uh, Washington D.C. and we have Gavin Newsom's visit. We had Blinken's visit, and she、uh, she and Biden. However, the United States policies have remained the same throughout all of this、uh, diplomacy. So we're just seem right now, at least for the time being. A lot of talk. However, I think Maria is actually—I mean—very right about this. There have been unexpected uh, conflicts uh, erupting around the world, which is、uh, slowing the U.S. strategy,、uh, which began with Obama. Exactly right, a pivot、uh, to the Pacific, and it's—it's it's maybe that is the one of the contributing factors to、uh, the United States overtures of diplomacy right now, because the United States simply cannot afford. Another conflict anywhere else. It's already bogged down with the the conflicts that are have erupted elsewhere. So I I know this sounds cold, but I I'm hoping that maybe this、uh, current environment will lead the United States back to、uh, the table, not just diplomatically, but in terms of real politics, taking actual actions that'll move it closer economically to other nations. Part of that is in the U.S. interest, and I think it. Because the U.S. has now one trillion in interest every year on its existing debt, and a large part of that is military related. We're spending a trillion dollars a year maintaining U.S. bases, eight hundred and fifty-one bases around the world outside of the United States, and it's really unmanageable if the United States economy is not effectively growing, which I think it's expected to grow by two point three percent. This year, for a major economy, that's good. But if you look at China, which by purchasing power parity actually has a larger economy than the United States, China's economy is growing, expected to grow by the IMF by 5.4 percent this year. So the United States, again, like I said earlier in this dialogue, really needs to reprioritize economics over、uh, military investments because its current strategies are untenable in the mid and long term. Bob, as a reporter from Thailand.、Yeah. China-U.S. relationships plays a very important role in terms of economic development for other developing countries.、Right. How important is it to have a stable China-U.S. relationship? I think in Thailand we got like a classic quote that we call like a when the powerful disagree, the humble is suffer. It means like a, the boss country. If you fighting, that got an impact not just only in Thailand. They also got impact for all around the world. The thing that I can see from China today, I read the news that they got a good news because、uh, they increased the flight direct flight from Beijing to US. So it's a good news. That means that they want to going to put maybe sit. On the table and talk together and want to exchange for the people, exchange for the ideas and to come back and like Jason said, maybe we are not like a economic competitor. We can be a, like an economic cooperated right in the future. This is what not just only for Thailand. I think all the country around the world want to see it, and I think it's the best for the world. What you just said、uh, remind me of this saying: When elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. Yeah, that, that's that's right. That's right. Looking forward, what are the prospects for APEC in shaping regional and global economic landscape, and also how will APEC contribute to regional stability and prosperity? It's always that increased trade is not just good for. Right now, but it's actually good for peace, and I think that's something that's coming out of this conversation that everyone wants to see. You know, everyone around the world wants everyone else to be getting along because this is better for everyone. Conflict is not in anyone's interest、uh, except ideologues. So, really, if APEC can increase trade, the likelihood of conflict actually decreases. I, I can't remember which prime minister, but I read a prime minister from Thailand who actually said this in a book about BRI, and that's where I really began to really internalize this idea. And the idea is basically like you know, if the United States has thirteen thousand KFCs in China, right, seven hundred and thirty-one 
uh, Hilton's by 2027, uh, 6,500 Starbucks, and hopefully 9,000 by 2027. And, you know, there's 50 brands at the grocery store that I can find that are from the United States and Walmart and $37 billion in agricultural goods going to China. I think it's not going to be in U.S. interest to have conflict. So, and I think business leaders obviously have a heavier say in U.S. economic policy, who's going to be elected, who's going to get campaign contributions, who's doing lobbying. So hopefully these business interests between not just the United States and China, but between all of our nations can reduce the probability of conflict. So it's not just about creating better economic outcomes, which is extremely important because we don't want to see people starving. We don't want to see poverty. And I think everyone around the world, no one wants to see that. No one's sane wants to see that. People want to see that absolute poverty is defeated, not just in China, but everywhere in the world. But also ending conflict, maybe by integrating our economies more and more and more through institutions like APEC, we can reduce the probability of there being conflict. Yes, I think that Jason pointed out something very important because we can see this um, this lack of coordination between two different kinds of industries. One, the agro-sector, the industrial sector is the same in Europe than the U.S. They are not interested in conflicts or in the uh, in the shift that the war is taking now. But you have also these transnational capital, military capitals that are well represented in the U.S. that do not have much of a problem with the end of globalization. And this is a contradiction where most of the population have, has little say because the interests of the population are not at the moment represented in the big economies. But um, we can see this uh, clearly expressed by all this series of demonstrations happening around the world after the war in Middle East broke out, and by a higher sense of criticism in Europe and the US towards the governments. So it's not that nothing can be achieved. And when it comes to APEC, unfortunately, it's not a political forum. But as within the context of APEC, this bilateral meeting, which is so important for this to change, or at least to uh, to start to change, to set a ground for the U.S. and China relationships to take over again. I agree with uh, two of you guys. And then I want to add something like, uh, I want this summit to be like uh, the first start for at least the fair competition for all the country in the world. Fair competition. Fair competition, yeah. Very well said. Thank you so much, Jason, Maria, and Bo, for your great insights on this APEC Summit. And so that'll be it for our this episode of Media Chats. 